On today's episode of The Green New Farm, we're talking consolidation. Since the early 1980s, the number of media companies controlling the bulk of U.S. media has shrunk from 50 to just five. The United States has gone from having 10 large airlines back in 2000 to just four today. Sue, a $17 billion deal in the cable industry, creating the fourth largest U.S. cable operator. A few blockbuster deals being announced. They call it Merger Monday on Wall Street. Because today is Merger Monday. Across all sectors, we're seeing more and more mergers and acquisitions between large corporations. And it's no secret what that can mean. When an industry gets too consolidated, any company trying to compete with them or survive in their supply chain can get crushed. Paving the way for even more consolidation. Reality dominated by near monopolies. An oligopoly, where a handful of companies control an entire industry coexisting peacefully without much in the way of price competition. We already have a problem with monopolies in this country. Monopoly, a nice, ruthless, money-hungry family game. It's against the law. And while it's becoming ever more obvious in other sectors, consolidation in agriculture isn't something that a lot of people are talking about. But it matters because it leads to overproduction that degrades the environment, creates public health crises, has caused an all-time high in farm debt, and undermines opportunities for more sustainable farming methods. History teaches that a nation grows according to its agriculture, the very basis of life. I've long been very concerned about concentration and competition in the agricultural sector. The plant combination with Monsanto is such an extraordinary opportunity to create a global leader in the agricultural industry. So we can grow more with less, with Roundup. When I was a kid, we had four implement dealers, and three or four car dealers, and don't got nothing left. Our input cost is awful high compared to the price we get out of stuff. I'm concerned that all these companies merging at the same time will have an enhanced adverse impact on competition within the industry. My name is Claire Connor, and on this episode of The Green New Farm, I try my best to disentangle the issues behind agricultural consolidation. I'm hoping to uncover the truth behind these polarizing issues, while also exploring alternatives and actions we can take to make a change. Along the way, I'll be speaking with a researcher, farmer, industry lobbyist, and political activist to better understand the integral workings of the agriculture sector. When I talk about consolidation in the agriculture sector, I'm largely referring to seed and chemical companies. These are the corporations which sell their products to farmers, and though it involves lots of different kinds of crops and produce, corn and soybeans are the biggest commodities here in the United States. I contacted Claire Calloway from the Open Markets Institute to talk more about consolidation and why it can be dangerous, especially in the agriculture and food sectors, and how policy can impact future mergers. My name is Claire Kellaway. I am a food reporter at the Open Markets Institute, which is an anti-monopoly think tank studying issues of consolidation and antitrust policy. Uh, and I specifically cover food and agriculture. So how does, how does the Open Markets Institute get involved with that kind of behavior? Yeah, so at the Open Markets Institute, we study all different kinds of that exclusionary conduct. I mean, basically antitrust policy is what we study and it's a matter of creating, you know, fair market rules and regulating for, you know, healthy competition and 
fair business practices. So we both document instances of unfair or like abuses of market power. A classic example is a large company using their wealth to buy up other companies, mm -hmm. um, such to the point where, you know, they have this outsized market share to cut out other competitors. Um, I think of antitrust policy as pretty boring and straightforward. Like we're asking for corporations like not to be allowed to break laws that we passed in like the 20s and 30s and before that. We're asking for corporations like not to use like huge Wall Street backing to offer artificially low prices and drive their competitors out of business. We're asking for like basic rules about not setting up exclusive deals between competitors. It's really just asking for a fair playing field. Unfortunately, the state of the sector today is not a fair playing field. We've seen this within the past decade as chemical and seed company mergers and acquisitions have allowed three companies to control two-thirds of the crop seed and nearly 70% of the agricultural chemical markets. A possible solution has been recently proposed in various bills which seek to put a moratorium on further mergers and acquisitions. I asked Claire how this would work and whether it was a realistic proposition. I mean, absolutely. The, the goal behind that bill is to, you know, put a pause on mergers. Mergers are past a certain threshold approved by the government. Um, and so they could just as well be blocked <laughs> by the government. And, and the idea is that they're paused until new policies are put in place that would more clearly regulate the system. As it stands, antitrust law has become very, very permissive to mergers. You look at things like the Bayer-Monsanto merger, which by all antitrust standards of, you know, even the recent past, like the 60s, even 70s, would have definitely be considered illegal and anti-competitive. But as the courts have become much more conservative and adopted a very conservative interpretation of antitrust law that focuses pretty narrowly on whether or not a merger will harm consumers, then you see bigger and bigger mergers being approved that in the past wouldn't have been. And so bills like the merger moratorium are sort of saying, look, we can see that the system has gone out of whack. We have mergers that by a lot of standards would have been considered illegal are now being approved and consolidation in agriculture has just reached such a dangerous point for pretty much everyone involved in the system that we really need to put a pause on this study the issue and figure out how we can improve these laws so they're actually preventing you know dangerous accumulations of power and so what are some of the like alternatives um being tossed around right now the current antitrust framework what's called the consumer welfare standard basically focusing like very narrowly on whether or not a merger will harm consumers normally in the form of higher prices for consumers and so going to a, in the case of mergers, at least, a system that is much more clear and makes sort of a normative judgment of, you know, we know past a certain point, you know, a lot of scholars say markets with, where the top four companies have 40% of the market are considered dangerously competitive. Like at that point, we see that there are 
leeways for companies to work together to abuse their market dominance. And so instead of having you know, this consumer welfare standard, you could set what are called bright line rules. A bright line rule refers to a law or regulation that doesn't require interpretation. Basically a very objective rule. Basically saying past a certain market share, um, you know, a merger will be under a high level of scrutiny. It'll be considered presumptively illegal unless the corporation can prove that, you know, this market share was gained by fair means that this merger won't have a not just harm on consumers but harm on workers farmers competition more broadly a lot of consolidation i think is happening because it's a question of you know building power one company wants to get big so that they can negotiate with another company that is bigger and sort of putting pressure on them mm -hmm. higher up in the supply chain so a good example is you know, meat companies will say, you know, well, we're not getting big to abuse farmers or to gain dominance. Like, we need to get big so we can negotiate with Walmart because, like, Walmart is huge and they're, you know, requesting better and better prices or lower and lower prices from us. And we need to build power to, to fight them. So sometimes consolidation and integration is maybe not necessarily about manipulating the market, but instead is simply because of competition. Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, I think it it makes firms compete on the wrong things. I think it ultimately is about market power, but it makes it so when you have a system that's so consolidated and everyone is abusing their market power, then all of a sudden that's like what you compete on. You compete on who can be the biggest, mm -hmm. who can screw the system the most, who yeah. can get the best deals, you know, get away with the worst contracts. Um, and, you know, how can we screw like everyone else around us rather than, you know, I'm competing on a quality product. I'm competing on, God forbid, like treating the planet and workers well, <laughs> you know, like pro-social things. Um, yeah, instead it makes it so everyone feels this pressure to be pretty ruthless and yeah, abuse their market power more than the next person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it's obviously such a polarizing topic. Um, I don't know about you, but I find myself struggling to know who to believe or what to believe. So I just was wondering like how you find truth and where you look for those sources. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think the main issue for consumers and for all of us is that it is really shrouded in a lot of layers of confusion and proprietary information and, um, you know, really getting down to the bottom of, you know, even if you can find scientific results that, you know, are testing a certain chemical, like knowing who is funding those studies. And, um, and it's also just a, a complicated topic. And so for the investigative journalism that has been out there, I mean, it shows time and time and again, the huge influence of the chemical industry mm -hmm. over this agencies that, you know, are regulating it. Like, yes, 
there are large regulatory processes, but without a doubt, these companies have a huge influence over that process. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, their fingerprints, um, yeah, and influence over the regulatory system and the revolving door between regulators and industry uh, has been documented. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that doesn't show you definitively that, you know, these products are not safe or not being accurately tested, but it definitely shows the power of these companies and the influence that they have. It's hard to say that we should just not use these chemicals. Um, definitely hard to actually enforce something like that. Like what are some smaller steps that people can push for more regulations? Yeah, you can envision a system in which there's a much lower use of pesticide and herbicide application than there is today just by having more diversity and more choices and more discrete management of uh, mostly yeah, weeds and, and pests. Part of the reason why there is an increased use of agricultural chemicals stems from the type of food production that we have. Mm -hmm. And so to go to the source, like you need to be changing the way you produce food from the beginning. We need to be moving away from a system of agriculture that encourages so much overproduction of all different kinds of crops. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously provides farmers a fair price, but not at the expense of rural communities, of the environment. I think this whole time I've been struggling with how overwhelming it is to try and imagine change. Because in the big picture sense, we as a society would have to change how we think about food. And I know that this is a pretty privileged thing to ask, and it's even more daunting when we consider how the current system is so strongly supported by government funds and powerful corporations. But Claire reminds us that markets aren't this natural force that we have no control over. Knowing that markets are a product of laws, they're governed by rules. And in a democracy, we have the ability to shape those rules and Markets can absolutely be regulated and shaped to have more pro-social outcomes and the outcomes that we want and to be more fair. These are all choices. And I think we can just as well make different choices. How do you expect the sector to change in the next five or 10 years? Um, Super big well, question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess like how would I expect or like how would I like want it to? How would you want it to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, a handful of very powerful investor-owned, for the most part, corporations make most of the decisions <laughs> about how we produce food, how it's distributed, what our food system looks like. And just vesting more of that decision-making, both more locally in a more decentralized type of food system, mm -hmm. but also within different kinds of businesses, within you know, worker-owned 
businesses, more cooperatives, um, more community-based mm-hmm. businesses. So not these very large national, you know, investor profiteering, <laughs> financialized companies. Mm-hmm. Um, agriculture specifically is a very, as much as farmers, you know, can be very conservative themselves and want to say that they don't want help from the government, they're getting a ton of help from the government. The agriculture is one of the most government involved industries we have in the United States. And so it's not a matter of if there's government involvement or not, it's, you know, what side is the government on? Um, And to date, you know, it's been on the side of corporations and to some extent like wealthy white landowners. (laughs) And so it can absolutely be on the side um, of people of color, of workers, of the environment, of eaters, (laughs) of everyone else. Um, Yeah, can definitely shift their priorities. And so I find a lot of hope and agency in that, that, you know, everything can be changed. So Claire helped us understand the larger scale issues of consolidation. But what do these consequences look like for farmers and people that live in rural communities? Guy Ashmore is an organic farmer in Clarksville, Ohio. When he first started farming, he grew conventional corn and beans and even had a confinement hog operation for a time. Eventually, he and his wife Sandy switched to an organic system. And his story really reveals what it's like to be a farmer in a rural community and how consolidation has changed that from the 1980s to the present day. Here, Guy sums up his journey in farming. My brother and I started uh, farming together back in like 1978 and uh, we started picking up neighbors' farms. So we were doing the corn, beans, you know, chemical farming. Uh, we even had a confinement hog operation at one time. Oh. This is all rented ground. And uh, so that kind of got us into the 80s. And the 80s were really a uh, very difficult time for farming. Some people said it was worse than the Great Depression. The amount of farmers that went out of business and the consolidation that kind of came about. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of drowning in debt in the 80s. And we heard of an uh, organization called OFA, Ecological Food and Farm Association and about organic farming. So it kind of intrigued us. And we were kind of different conventional farmers anyway. We always ran a rotation, corn, beans, wheat, and hay, even on a rented ground. Uh, we raised tobacco for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we went to OFA and started doing some of their field days. And uh, it kind of really surprised us how well some organic farmers were doing at that time. And that they, uh, weren't in debt as bad, <laughs> the chemical companies and so forth. So, and at the same time in 1988, my wife Sandy and I were able to buy uh, a 10 acres. So it's the first time we had any ground of our own. And that's when we kind of started switching to organic methods here at home to try to try it out. Mm-hmm. In 1998, uh, we gave up all our rented ground and we bought uh, 38 more acres here. And that's when we kind of converted over and became certified organic. Because, you know, we've, we're first-time property owners. Like, my family always farmed. Sandy's family always farmed. But we didn't inherit any farms. So we didn't inherit any equipment. Uh, we got a knowledge. And the main thing my parents told me when I got out of high school is whatever I did, don't farm. Yeah. <laughs> so, had to be a typical teenager. You know, doing what your parents say. <laughs> so despite warnings, Guy and his wife Sandy went on to farm and went even further to switch to an organic operation. Here he talks a bit about that first transition. We're glad we went 
got out of conventional farming. That was the best decision we ever made. It was kind of hard. Uh, that would have been uh, about 1988 we started. And, you know, uh, about everybody we know, farms, uh, family members, friends. So we were kind of uh, <laughs> a little uh, out there maybe for them. You know, uh, it's kind of funny. It seemed like you always talk farming and then we went switched to farming. You get a family reunion or uh, you know, get together. That's the only thing they didn't talk about was farming because we were <laughs> different, you know. What were their attitudes? Attitudes was, you know, uh, chemicals aren't going to hurt you. Mm. You know, dad's been doing it 40 years. He's fine. You know, it's all overblown. So, you know, we were kind of a little different. We, uh, when we were spraying, we kind of usually would, uh, um, you know, in instance, we were using Roundup back in those days. And then when it first came out, they wanted to use one to two quarts per acre. Mm. And we were using about eight ounces. So we were kind of, now they're recommending eight ounces, but when it first came out, it just poured on there. So we were always kind of on the side where we could control it. We kind of did our own spray. We didn't hire it out. And uh, we could kind of tweak it, I guess you might say, to what we thought was right without trying to kill all our earthworms and uh, the like. Despite the challenges of switching over, organics has proven to be the best methods for Guy and Sandy's farm and family. They felt safer raising their kids in that environment and believe they're being better stewards for their land. Farming organic produce also allows more competitive pricing compared to farming commodity crops. You have no choice on what you're getting for your product, pretty much. You know, they said they're going to give you $3 a bushel. You're going to get $3 a bushel even if you had $3.50 it cost you to raise that bushel. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have a lot less control. I think you even have less now. So it's one nice thing when we kind of switched over to uh, raising produce. We got to sort of selling produce in the late 80s here at home. It was conventional produce, but uh, we could ask our price that <laughs> we wanted, you yeah. know, within reason. I mean, you can't, you know, say you want $10 a pound for tomatoes, nobody's going to pay it, but you're not going to get, you know, 60 cents a pound. We could get $3. So we had a lot more control, and that was kind of uh, empowering, really, that you could uh, raise a product, uh, put an equitable price on it, and have people enjoy getting it. A fair price for labor and quality is always a plus. Crops like corn and soybeans are highly overproduced and subsidized by the government, which creates a deceivingly low price that does not reflect farmers' expenses to produce them. Here Guy talks a bit about the results of this kind of overproduction. Right. We, we don't raise crops for people or less. We raise it for ethanol, mm-hmm. we raise it for ink, soybean ink, we raise it for cosmetics. I mean, I do know that. Soybean meal and corn goes into livestock feed, mm-hmm. but that's only about 30%, I think, of that crop. So, you know, they've done a great job of inventing uses for the corn that we didn't have before. Yeah. You, know, you look at the economics on ethanol, it takes more energy almost to, to make ethanol than to do get out of it. Probably somebody farmed 350 or 400 acres, that was a big farm, and it was diversified, they had livestock on it, and, they, and as things expanded and expanded, it's kind of went to bigger, faster, <laughs> quicker, you know. Yeah. And uh, as that's all just changed, I'm not sure how much we could go back, really, especially the price of land for people to get into farming. And, uh, but the organic movement has really changed, and it's gotten better. We're encouraged by it. I think uh, our extension agent here, I like him, you know, thing was you know organic farming you can't feed the world people starve to death and and i like tony's 
point is, can organic farming feed the world? He goes, I don't know, but it might save the family farm. That's a good way to put that, you know. You can argue, I mean, there's mass starvation now with all the chemicals we got. So people don't look at the picture on that either. Yeah. What do you, like, wish more people understood about farmers and farming in general? Uh, well, I think a, what, one thing I think I would like more people to think about organic farming or conventional farming, we're much more alike than we're different. Mm-hmm. We're all dependent on the soil. We're all dependent on seeds. We're all dependent on insect control. We are all have to deal with the weather. I mean, it's all these things are similar that I think if people kind of try to divide us, you know, it's organic or it's conventional. Whether it's, and I think, uh, I think, Farmers kind of get a black eye because I think uh, they push it more and more that, you know, how much they're polluting, you know, the soil erosion. And, you know, most farmers I know really want to do a good job. You know, they're just in this uh, cycle of uh, corn, beans and, you know, Roundup. But, you know, they they take pride in what they do. And, uh, you know, so sometimes I think society pits uh, farmers and the consumer against each other. Versus, you know, we try to encourage the consumer. We kind of got an open door policy here. If you want to come and look around, we got nothing to hide. Uh, but I think sometimes farmers get their hackles up thinking everyone thinks they're, you know, out to uh, you know, raise a crop at no matter what cost, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think the average age of the American farmers, like, well, I guess you're looking at it about 64. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet, but, <laughs> but you know, when I first started farming there in the late seventies, early eighties, I think the average age was like 61. So it's always been a, a bad thing. And uh, what's kind of frightening now, I think uh, we're to a point now there's so, so much ground that's in private hands. It's going to be turned over because of the age difference. Mm. Farm grounds bring in eight or $10,000 an acre. I can't afford it. And, you know, a young farmer starting out, you know, it's kind of like getting out of college and all of a sudden you're going to, buy a $500,000 house, you can't do it, you know, you, unless you're, you know, a doctor. So, uh, we need more mentoring programs and we need more ways to find out how we can get young people access to land. Mm-hmm. I just don't know the answer. It's just really tough. Mm-hmm. Guy goes on to say that farming isn't really a viable profession for a lot of young people in his community. And we'll hear in a second about how that's affected the land around him. But here's the thing. Education and awareness is one of the most important things moving forward. If we want to begin changing our food system, we need to start educating and training a more informed generation of producers and consumers. It seemed like the generation that was farming, uh, the next generation generally aren't here anymore. So it's absentee landowners. Mm-hmm. Quite a few farms went to houses. Um, quite a few farms have been consolidated. You know, all the fences have been tore out. So instead of having you know, eight farms, you saw you got one big field. Mm-hmm. I don't call them a farm anymore. It's just a big, big field. <laughs> it's yeah. brown all winter, you know, grown in the summer. Uh, you think that's a problem? Yes, I think it's a major problem. It's just like it's, our land's assaulted. They, they just want it for a growing medium. They don't act like it's alive, you know, full of microbes. And they just 
kill everything. They don't want anything. There's always winter annuals that come up. Well, they want to kill them now too because it slows them down in the spring, you know. And uh, our small communities have really dried up, you know, like they all had local feed mills and had little hardware stores that, you know, because farmers were businessmen, you had to go buy it. Yeah. Now they're, they're all kind of gone. So that's all kind of changed. On the flip side of that, I see a lots of promise. I think uh, all the cooking shows got people really <laughs> thinking about eating. I think, I think <laughs> internet's helped connect us. Uh, good or bad, I think the internet's helped because, you know, when we first started organic, you know, it was hard to get information. You almost had to find somebody that knew somebody. And uh, I will say the organic community in the, has always been really open. I mean, it's like people want to share so much because well, I don't want to see somebody get, make the same mistakes I did. Mm-hmm. It was kind of different than that in the conventional farming. Everybody's kind of like, everybody acts like the American farmer helps each other. But most of these American farmers are waiting for the neighbor to go out of business so they can pick up their farm. And, you know, the only way they can expand is by more acres. So that's kind of changed. It used to be a more community. Now it's uh, maybe community in face, but not in action like it used to be. But I'm real hopeful. So we've really seen uh, a big influx of people wanting to know their farmer. And uh, so they might not want to get their hands dirty, but they want to shake their hands to somebody that does. And, mm-hmm. and they want to get to know somebody. And, and uh, it's real encouraging. Next, I asked Guy what he thinks needs to change in the sector. Right now, you know, organics are kind of under attack, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because there's, we grow at about 20, 25% rate every year. And when we first started doing this organic movement, we were kind of made fun of hmm. and you were ridiculed. And now the big players like uh, Bear and all them want to make it their idea, Driscoll and, you know, change the rules because there's money in it. When there's money in it, then uh, the big players start coming in and, you know, now you got to the, so the big players are coming in, but we've learned a long time ago from other people smarter than us that when there's monopolies, there's opportunities and on the edges and the corners. You got to kind of see where, where your opportunities are and try not to fight uh, Goliath head on. <laughs> and so that's disheartening on that. I know foreign imports are coming in. That's bad for the grain farmers, but you know, I think the more we make connections with each other, the more, more markets we'll have mm-hmm. strength in numbers. That's for sure. Yeah. How, how can people support you and support other farmers and what can people besides farmers do to help kind of, sway the system from supporting these huge companies to more kind of small scale local farmers you know if you can buy direct it's the best thing from farmers be it or your proteins or produce uh, you can be an advocate for small farmers or uh, organic farmers you know letter writings does work still, you know, phone calls to your congressman, sometimes it helps. <laughs> but, uh, I think the more we get connected as eaters and farmers, the, the more we can help change the system. And uh, I really think that's kind of where it starts. I mean, you can kind of get overwhelmed, but, you know, if you start with one small thing, it's friends of ours go, well, I can't afford a, you know, that's the big bone contents for me, can't afford to feed organic. Well, you know, if you buy organic potatoes and make your own French fries versus buying a box of frozen French fries that's organic, I mean, you really can't eat organically pretty reasonable. 
And so I always tell them, if you just start with one item, you know, if your kids drink a lot of milk, get organic milk, at least for them, you know, and uh, kind of start small and, and go, you know, uh, every little bit you do that helps the organic movement. So if you can support a small grower, even if it's in a small way, it's a start. In the next segment, I talk to Chris Novak. Born and raised on his father's farm in Iowa, Chris is now the president and CEO of CropLife America, a trade association which represents the companies that manufacture and distribute agricultural pesticides here in the United States. And we'll get into exactly what that means. While I think Chris presents a pretty valid case for pesticide usage, I can't help but shake some of the hesitations I have when it comes to the corporations behind these products. That being said, it's not a black and white issue, and Chris helps us understand a bit more about how the industry operates. So let's jump in and start with Chris explaining what exactly CropLife America does. So as a trade association, uh, we are looking at the rules and regulations uh, that are proposed by the Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, we are monitoring uh, legislation that's introduced in Congress as well uh, to ensure that uh, the the interests of our member companies and, and agriculture as a whole Uh, are represented and and protected there. Uh, We also have a team of state affairs professionals uh, who work uh, across the 50 states um, uh, to monitor legislation that's introduced uh, within state legislatures. Uh, And then finally, we also have uh, a legal and communications team uh, that are uh, engaged in different lawsuits, monitoring different lawsuits that uh, are specific to uh, our industry. Uh, And then from a communication standpoint, um, most of our effort is spent on media relations, responding to questions uh, and issues that come up uh, in the news media. And yet we're also working to ensure that uh, the industry's messages are, are reaching out uh, and, and getting into the media and to consumers. Mm-hmm. So is that is that kind of what lobbying is? Like I hear it all the time. So is it kind of like you guys going in and presenting information to politicians? It, it, that that's that's exactly it, okay. uh, and and that certainly is a major share of what we do as a trade association that represents the industry. Um, a little more on my background, I I came from a farm in Iowa and went to school at Iowa State in agriculture, and then I wanted to do an internship, and so I came to Washington D.C. and and worked for. Uh, U.S. Senator Charles Grassley, who is still in the Senate today, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he offered me a job, and so I worked almost four years with the senator on on agricultural issues. Um, I was fresh out of college, you know. I had a farm background and and a, and a working knowledge of agriculture, uh, but the people who came in uh, from Iowa, the people who came in from industry groups. Uh, would come in to share information about the issues that they were concerned about. Uh, and, you know, on these types of issues, I heard from uh, I, I heard from the crop life lobbyist. It, it was under a different name at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But I also heard from farmers uh, and I heard from environmental organizations. And, you know, my job as a staffer to the U.S. Senator uh, was to take all of that information in and then uh, help put it together in a way that helped the senator, you know, make a decision mm. about what was best for, you know, his constituents in Iowa. And so, uh, yes, as lobbyists, we play an important role in educating 
um, you know, in my example, I was 23 years old and working on Capitol Hill and, and so needed that opportunity to hear from, you know, people with different perspectives mm -hmm. on a particular issue. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what you wanted as a staffer was to ensure that uh, your member of Congress had the best information available to make the best decision. Um, and that's where lobbyists, you know, play a critical role. And that's that's part of our job, uh, you know, uh, working uh, with legislators and, and their staff on Capitol Hill. Okay. In 2020, the agribusiness sector spent almost $140 million on lobbying alone, which shows just how powerful their voice is in the government. And while we might assume this lobbying power would just encourage the industry to push even more fertilizers and pesticides, here Chris explains how precision agriculture can help reduce these kinds of chemical inputs. As farms have gotten larger, they've needed additional help uh, to figure out um, the right agronomic inputs and and so uh you know how should they be working to control certain weeds uh doing soil testing uh to ensure that they have the right uh nutrients uh, the right fertilizers uh, mm -hmm. that, that are being applied um you know we're seeing uh, the the technology developments in agriculture uh precision agriculture mm -hmm. is what you know we'll how we'll talk about it but it's using um geographic information systems, global positioning satellites. Um, so it would start with, you know, when you take your combine and, and harvest your grain in the fall and you're recording, you know, where in the field are you getting, you know, larger yields, where are you getting smaller yields? Um, the farmer then may come back and do soil testing to identify the, the nature of the soils. And that helps them write a prescription to say, in this section of my field, I do need more fertilizer, or in this section of my field, I've got more weed pressure, uh, and so um, I don't have to spray the entire field, or I don't have to apply, you know, fertilizer at the same rate all the way across the field. Mm -hmm. I now have the mapping systems and the equipment that allows me to tailor and put the right amount of fertilizer or chemical onto a particular parcel of land that may be, you know, a square yard, uh, as opposed to, um, I've got a 50 acre field and I'm going to treat the whole thing, uh, the same way. So looking forward, technology can play a role in improving the environmental footprint of conventional farming by preventing runoff and leaching. Though the technologies and proprietary data systems introduce their own host of issues, precision agriculture is a step toward decreasing the use of chemicals. It can also be a valuable step in making the farmer's job a little less difficult. Next, we'll hear Chris talk about what it was like when the product Roundup first came out. I was thrilled, um, you know, when Dad came home uh, with a, a contraption. <laughs> uh, it was it was a plastic pipe uh, that had uh, rope wicks, uh, you know, attached to it, and. Uh, he would pour the Roundup uh, into this plastic pipe and mm -hmm. then drove that uh, through the field on the tractor. And, and as it brushed across uh, the top of weeds uh, that were over the, the soybeans, mm -hmm. uh, it would kill those weeds. Well, for, for me as a kid, I didn't have to walk those soybean fields. I didn't <laughs> have to spend, you know, eight hours a day out mm -hmm. in the field, uh, you know, with a, with a hoe digging out or cutting out, cutting out weeds uh, because now dad was able to use uh, you know chemicals in a in a meaningful way uh, to help help weed control mm -hmm. um, and, and that's 
you know, uh, again, we've moved from, you know, intensive hand labor um, to fewer people on the farm today, um, you know, fewer people willing uh, to do that type of farm work. And as a result, um, you know, we have developed the innovations that have allowed us to continue to produce uh, more, more food uh, on fewer acres of land. It's important to not forget that, in a very real way, the increased accessibility and usage of chemicals has made a lot of farms more successful and made the farmer's job a lot easier. Operations today simply could not exist without the use of chemicals, whether organic or synthetic. If we had a more extensive network of smaller alternative farms, there wouldn't be such a strong reliance on chemicals. But for would-be farmers looking to launch a new operation, it's not that simple. Agricultural land is just too expensive, especially for someone just starting out. I asked Chris about this. Do you think there's fewer people willing to to be farmers, or is it just it's obviously really difficult to get in when there's a lot of big um, farms taking up the landscapes? Um, I think for, for somebody that, that wants to... Um, get into agriculture, there still is a pathway uh, mm -hmm. for them to do so. Um, and again, though, I'll, I'll go back, you know, when my father purchased the farm from his father, um, the cost was about $1,000 an acre. Uh, and so a hundred acre farm, uh, you know, uh, dad paid, dad paid a hundred thousand um, dollars. The farm today is about $10,000 an acre. Mm -hmm. And so to purchase, to purchase, you know, my home farm, if I said I want to go back and, and do that, it, you know, would now be a million dollars. And and so that is part of the challenge uh, that we face in agriculture. Um, if you do want to, to farm, you know, in a in a way that's broader than just marketing to um, a farmer's market and mm -hmm. capturing that value, um you know, do you have enough productivity? Uh, can you secure, you know, a price that helps you pay for the cost of the land and the equipment uh, that you need, which uh, obviously is far higher today than, than what it was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Right. What would you like to see change in the agriculture sector? Like, what do you think needs to change? Um, and then also, what are you hopeful about for the future? Okay. Um, uh, well, first, um, you know, I am I am a tremendous advocate for uh, the adoption of of innovation and science within agriculture, and in part, you know, we're challenged because food is something that is comfortable and familiar, and mm -hmm. for many consumers, the idea of innovation in agriculture they they want to return to you know, what they believe was a simpler, you know, healthier, cleaner time. Mm -hmm. And yet the reality is, um, you know, our food is safer today than what it was, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It, it is healthier today. Um, and again, just as I shared the experience, um, our farm, you know, my, my, my farm in Iowa is, um, being farmed in a far better way from an environmental management standpoint because of the, the use and adoption of technologies. Um, so I still 
want to see uh, us find a way to help consumers understand, um, you know, what, what I know from my personal experience, how the changes that we've seen in agriculture are providing better environmental quality, are helping us reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, are producing safer foods. And so, you know, but, but that idea that, um, we can have an agriculture that allows young farmers to come in, that, that allows and, and pays those young farmers uh, to farm in a system that may produce a specialty, specialty product. I mean, for something that you want at the farmer's market, um, you know, that avenue is there and that can be profitable for those farmers. Um, and at the same time, you know, uh, that we reach a point where consumers do understand that, um, you know the food the food in the market is safe uh and if it's grown conventionally um you know that too is an important part of of our food system and um reaching an understanding uh, that both systems can coexist that we can learn from one another uh, and improve and improve um, our productivity from a food standpoint our sustainability from a food and environmental standpoint uh, you know that's that's the challenge for your generation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep up the fight, but yeah. uh, we need we need more people uh, to look at those issues and not declare that one system is good or bad, but to realize that both systems uh, can benefit and grow from uh, working working together. When I was doing research for this project, I contacted quite a few people to potentially interview. During one of those phone calls, I asked, how do these companies still exist when so many of them have some pretty controversial histories? And the guy I was talking to responded by saying, why does anyone stand up to them in the first place? That really resonated with me. These huge chemical and seed companies have so much power, so much money, and they usually win when it comes to legal battles. So I started raking through news stories to find out just who were the people fighting against these corporations and stumbled across Gary Hooser, former state senator of Hawaii and Kauai County Council member. After our initial phone call, I was so excited to talk more and hear about his experiences being a community activist as well as politician. And by the end of the conversation, I was just so touched and inspired to push against the status quo myself. And I think anyone who listens to it would agree. Let's get into it. A couple of people, young people, uh, you know, a young woman named Fern Holland and a young man named Saul Khan, who I've known since they were children. I know their mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Uh, They came to me and they said, you know, uh, uncle, you know, that's uh, uh, an affectionate name. They in Hawaii is used a lot for uh, this situation. They said, uncle, can you help? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I, I'm not Superman. I'm only a council member. I can't kick Syngenta out of Kauai. I can't. I don't have the political power or legal power to do that. But let's talk. Okay, so a little backstory here. In the early 2000s, major agrochemical companies started to buy up plots of land in Hawaii to test seeds in adjoining chemical inputs. Hawaii became the hotbed for these sites because the climate allows for three to four harvests a year, saving the companies a lot of time and money. It also happened that these sites were usually located in predominantly lower-income areas made up of Native Hawaiians. And one more thing, 
We just heard Gary mention the company Syngenta, which is one of the major four agrochemical companies in the world. We'll hear more about his own experience with this company later. Okay, back to Gary. I said, maybe I can get disclosure. Maybe I can at least have them tell us what they're spraying, what chemicals they're using, what you know, secret ex- what experiments are doing. And I went to the companies and asked them to meet. I said, you know, people in the community are concerned. Can you meet with me as a council member? And let's talk about this. You know, I'm trying to figure it out. You know, I've got a job to do. And so I met with them. I'll never forget that meeting. We were in a conference room at the, in the council uh, uh, building, county building. And I said, you know, people want to know what, what you're using. Can you tell me what chemicals you're using, what, what your uh, experiments you're conducting? And they uh, proceeded to lie to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they told me if I really wanted to know, I had to go find out myself what they weren't going to tell me. When, when lying to me, they would say stuff like, we're only using what every other farmer uses. Mm. And you dig into it, you realize, no, you're, you're only using what every other agrochemical GMO farmer might use that's doing experiments. Not regular farmers didn't use anything close to the quantity and variety of pesticides that these guys used. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're using a lot of what they call restricted use pesticides, which is a higher level. It's not like Roundup. It's not like glyphosate you buy. It's, this is not stuff you buy at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is stuff you need a special license for that has pages and pages of warnings on it, mm-hmm. uh, health warnings. And so they, they, would, they would mislead me. Then they would tell me they're feeding the world. You know, I, should, I shouldn't bother them because this, we need this stuff to feed the world. And then I said, well, it kind of makes sense. There's a lot of corn they're growing. Uh, and then, you, then I looked into it further and realized and found out the corn they were growing is not for human consumption. The, the boxes they ship the seed in says not for human consumption. It's for ethanol or, or for cattle feed or for high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And none of this is feeding anyone in Hawaii. So here's another important point. Those cornfields that we see when we're driving through rural America that exemplify the Midwest, they're not growing the sweet corn varieties that you eat at a summer barbecue. It's field corn that gets refined into ethanol, made into livestock feed, or exported to other countries for feed, with a small amount processed into high fructose corn syrup or other processed food products. The bottom line is that we've overproduced so much in this country, we've basically had to make up uses for corn. So Gary's right, we really aren't feeding the world with this stuff. And after finding this out, Gary and a few others decided to take action. So I went back to my group and we put together a bill. Uh, uh, It's well known in the state of Hawaii Mm -hmm. and perhaps in circles outside the Hawaii Mm -hmm. and uh, with people who discuss this issue, it's called Bill 2491. And I I pieced it together from conversations with this small group. Uh, and this, this is an important thing I want to stress that if not for these citizens, these young people coming to me and asking and being willing to help, it wouldn't have happened. So after developing this bill, the chemical companies immediately reacted by falsely claiming people would lose their jobs if it passed. Workers were bust in. The hearings would last for hours on end as people from both sides testified. And in the clip I'm about to play, Gary describes a moment during one of these hearings that he saw what was really going on with these corporations. And at one point, I asked uh, uh, one of the executives from, I believe it was Syngenta, it might have been Bex, mm-hmm. 
And I asked him, I said, you know, why are you fighting this so hard? Why, why don't you just agree to disclosure? You know, you say it's safe. You say, if we really want to find out, we can do uh, information act requests and find out. Why don't you just tell it? Tell us what it is and don't do it next to schools, you know? And he looked at me and he said, council member, he said, you don't understand. There are implications beyond the law that we're concerned about. And I asked him, I said, so tell me, you know, what implications beyond the law are you concerned about? And this is on video. This is all public record. Mm -hmm. And he says, we're concerned that other communities might want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost blew up at that point, you know? So you're concerned, we're going to set an example. So other communities are going to want to also protect their, their place and ask for you not to do it next to schools and stuff like that. That was a very telling moment. That's what they would. They didn't want to have a little tiny community like Kauai tell them what to do. Uh, and they were going to fight it every step of the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so th this is a lesson for uh, political action in, in small communities, especially, but I think any community. Uh, they demanded action and they made it clear that we're not going to go away until the elected leaders of our community deal with this. So they would show up at they showed up at every meeting. Uh, they marched uh, and we had meetings without exaggeration, going 10 hours, 10 hours long into the evening, into midnight, mm -hmm. and the people would not go home. They'd, they'd stay in the room. Uh, and so the, my colleagues on the council uh, soon realized that this is, not, this is not something we could just defer to later. This is not something we could put off. This is something that we have to deal with. Uh, and it's not gonna go away. I mean, as an issue, it's not gonna go away and these people aren't gonna go away. Finally, the bill passed. It was altered from its original state and weakened a little bit, but the community felt really triumphant until the mayor vetoed the bill. But after more long hearings, the council overrode the veto. Not long after that, the chemical companies sued Kauai County. You know, Syngenta, Dow Chemical, DuPont, and a company called Bex sued Kauai County, county of 65,000 people, for the right to spray poisons next to schools and not tell us about it. And so shame on you. That, that was our, uh, yeah, that was it. Shame on you. Uh, and they won. They won in federal court. Uh, that was one of my lowest moments. Mm -hmm. um, but the court ruled that the counties did not have the legal authority and only the state could regulate these companies. Uh, and we appealed it. We lost the appeal. After this, the community came together and fought for another three years or so to pass another statewide bill that's still in effect to this day and has set a precedent for other states as well. But let's go back a bit. Shortly after these companies sued the county, Gary was invited to speak at an event in Switzerland for a group that pushes back against corporate abuse. After agreeing, they asked Gary if he would also be willing to speak at the Syngenta shareholders meeting. Here's what he said. Usually I said, those people don't like me. <laughs> you know, they're not going to let me talk to their group. Yeah. And he says, no. He said, you don't understand, Gary. He said, we own, we own a couple of shares in Syngenta. We can transfer those shares into your name. You'll be a shareholder and you're entitled to speak at their annual meeting. So I said, sure. And 
it was one of the most uh, powerful moments of my life in uh, working in, on issues and in politics. The, uh, to be able to speak to that group, most of the shareholders don't have a clue about this kind of stuff. They're, they're retirees. These, these, this audience is a lot of retirees. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I spent uh, about three minutes talking to the, uh, the audience. Mm-hmm. And basically, I said, imagine if you live where I live. You know, imagine if you live where I live. And every day, this company is spraying stuff, chemicals that they won't tell you what it is. They've got warning labels, you know, 40 pages thick, but they won't tell you everything they're doing. Uh, they're spraying it next to schools. Kids are getting sick in the school. Imagine if you live where I live. You know, imagine if you live where I live and people are getting sick and people are, there's more cancer than there should be. And people are asking me for help. And what am I supposed to do? Right. And so I go ask the company, what, what's going on? You know, how, you know, I need to tell my community, that's my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to look out for their health and tell me. And they tell me, no, I'm not going to tell you, council member. You know, uh, I might be naive to a certain extent, but I felt like the audience got it. The rank and file people, a lot of retirees in the audience kind of thing. Uh, I think they got it. I really encourage everyone to visit GaryHooser.com and check out the video of him speaking at the meeting because it's pretty badass and really inspiring. Unfortunately, though, after all this drama with these companies, Gary wasn't reelected. But that hasn't stopped his involvement in fighting for climate and social justice issues. My work right now is, is a, an advocacy role, uh, still, though, with, uh, with politics and policy as a central focal point. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's the only system we have. I tell people that, you know, I mean, you might not like it. You might think the fix is in, but it's a system we got. And the only way to fix it is for you or your friends to run for office or to support candidates or to be involved testifying mm-hmm. and be an advocate. Uh, sitting at home com- complaining, it's not going to fix things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be involved. You need to march. Yeah, we need to march. We need to hold signs. But you need to do more than that. Uh, you need to write letters to the editor. You need to do all that stuff. But you got to run for office and you got to support people mm-hmm. to be elected. Uh, and that's, that's the path I'm on right now, working on, uh, on our own little revolution here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like on your website, it says uh, Hawaii can be a model for the change that is needed globally. And I mean, as you've already talked about, it's made huge strides and other states have followed your guys' lead. So how has such like a small community been able to start this wave of change? You know, it, it sounds like uh, a cliche, but it, it literally came from uh, a young man giving me a call and mm-hmm. a young woman saying, uh, uncle or council member, mm-hmm. you know, can you help? So it's people reaching out uh, is how this started. Uh, so I guess a, a f- fundamental message is for me to tell people they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. They have to make a difference, okay? Uh, the, the planet is going to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. People need to step up, and they are stepping up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it when you watch the news. And, uh, you know, we, we win when we, when we organize and when we focus. Uh, and we're on the, on the right side. We just need to be engaged. We can't stay home and just talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
I have these conversations a lot with people, mm-hmm. uh, at coffee shops or having a beer or whatever. And they'll be talking about this issue or that issue. And what I'll say is, well, hey, so what? So what are we going to do about it? I mean, we can talk about how bad this is, but what are we going to do? So I encourage people to, to turn the conversation to that always. What are we going to do? And how, we, how can we do it more? How can we do it better? And put our energy to that. Democracy doesn't happen by itself. People have to get involved. Uh, more and more people can, can realize that, and we can make a change. It doesn't take a lot to make a change. It takes commitment. It takes time. And it can be fun. It's, it's, it's actually when you're surrounded by people that are engaged and energized and believe and are willing to commit to making the world a better place, that's a pretty cool group of people to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and winning every once in a while is, is good. And you can win. <laughs> At the worst case, you slow the bad stuff down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can and we do make some big wins. I closed my laptop after this interview and did a little happy dance. It seriously left me so exponentially hopeful. I think one of the most important lessons that we learn from Gary is the importance of working together and leaning on your community. Because that's how you stay energized, that's how you stay inspired. And even though it can seem overwhelming to try and make a change, it can be done if we organize and work together. I'm not going to lie, after talking to all these people, doing all this research, there were these moments where I was just like, why aren't people talking about this? What's going on? I literally had like a slight meltdown. I just felt really disheartened. And to be honest, I wanted to burn it all to the ground, destroy these mega corporations and just change everything. But as easy as it is to get lost in despair, we have to find hope in the possibilities for a better future. We need to work to design a world with more farmers, more hands in the field, and much more of a physical connection to the land itself. Right now, the heartland of the U.S. is almost exclusively growing corn and soybeans on massive, multi-thousand acre farms. Operations of this scale require very expensive machinery to be handled efficiently, which physically disconnects the farmer from their land. And while technological advancements like precision farming are important aspects of reducing chemical usage, there are other ways. And I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to demonize conventional farmers. They're still stewards of the land, and they care about producing a good crop. I just think they're backed into a corner when it comes to how and what they produce. What were once thriving rural towns are dried up. Small businesses that once provided for these have closed. Young people have moved away. The bones of what was once a bustling community are all that's left. Now imagine what we could have. A patchwork of farms across the country, growing a plethora of crops, using varying methods, owned by a lot of different people from different backgrounds. Maybe Jaime has a couple acres and utilizes heirloom seeds. Rachel and her partner have an orchard with ducks and pasture where they share their trial and errors. Ron still has his corn operation, but has new neighbors and his sleepy hometown is beginning to reawaken as the local market rebuilds. Young people across the nation begin to see sustainable farming as a viable profession. 
As alternative models become more common and more affordable, what was once a niche market for wealthy urbanites becomes accessible to more and more people. Can you see it? If we can imagine this, then it can become our reality. The average farmer in America is around 60 years old, which means a huge land turnover is about to occur. And even if some farmers are willing to use just a fraction of their land to produce different kinds of crops or experiment with alternative methods or allow another farmer to try these things on their land, we can start to make this vision a reality. But we have to work for it. If you are privileged with time and money, use it. That doesn't mean you have to be an organic, raw vegan or whatever. But if you can change a few of your purchasing habits or even cooking habits to better reflect what is seasonal, then do it. If you don't have the funds but have some spare time, then learn. Read articles, listen to more podcasts. I promise that once you begin to truly understand the issue, you'll develop the sense of urgency and action that is needed to address it. Pressure your congressman to support stronger antitrust laws and regulations. Learn about your local representation and legislation and find local grassroots organizations that you can join. As we've already learned, the key to a functioning democracy is to challenge it. Make your voice heard and organize. If we truly believe that these ideas are possible, then we need to work together to achieve that change. You know, we, we win when we, when we organize and when we focus. Uh, and we're on the, on the right side. When there's monopolies, there's opportunities. It's on the edges and the corners, you gotta kind of see where, where your opportunities are. But, you know, I think the more we make connections with each other, the more, more markets we'll have. Strength in numbers, that's for sure. We can absolutely be on the side um, of people of color, of workers, of the environment, of eaters, <laughs> of everyone else. Um, yeah, can definitely shift their priorities. And so I find a lot of hope and agency in that, that, you know, everything can be changed.